Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Welcome to Thursday's episode. If you are new to the podcast, Tuesday episodes are for interviews with expert fraud fighters on various topics. This past Tuesday, I got to speak with my friend Matt Vega, who heads up fraud for Candy Digital. And he talked a lot about what he's learned so far in NFT fraud, which is so much different than e-commerce fraud and really fascinating. And I happen to know that there are several big brands that listen to this podcast that have it on their roadmap for this year to launch NFTs. So I knew that it'd be really important to bring him on and help you get a little bit of a feel for what you need to know and what he has learned over the last several months of building the fraud program there. And also my guests on next week's podcast are also going to talk about NFT fraud and crypto from a different perspective. So definitely be sure that you are subscribed to the podcast so you are alerted when Tuesday's episode is out. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about my LinkedIn post from last week that apparently went viral. It doesn't happen often. I think this is probably the biggest one so far. So I know it's a topic that people are interested in and I can share a lot more about it than I can with a character limit on LinkedIn. But that is PayPal's recent announcement. It was fraud related and the root causes of their fraud issues. Why this is an issue for almost every online tech company that I know of, and I know a lot of them now more than ever, and ways to avoid having making uh, similar disclosures for your company. So that's uh, what I'm going to talk about today, and it's going to be a deep dive into part of PayPal's annual earnings announcement that caught a lot of attention in the fraud community. And even if you didn't read that post, I am going to deep dive into it. As of just a few days after I made it, it's been viewed by well over 110,000 people, according to LinkedIn. So I was not expecting that much attention on something that I just posted like late at night, thinking, oh, I need to get something out there just in case and, and share my thoughts. So I have so many more thoughts to share. So that's what this podcast is for. <laughs> Before I dive into that, I just want to provide a special shout out to my sponsors, Sion, I have been very grateful for their partnership over the last several weeks and really have had some great conversations with them as well as some merchants and fintech companies that have been looking at them and a couple that use them as well. And uh, just how really interesting their approach is and how unique it is, and especially for digital goods companies. And if you're in the US and haven't heard about them much, it's because they have been growing out their EU and APAC exposure, but they're coming into the US now. And uh, I think you can get to know them at upcoming fraud conferences. Or honestly, the best way is to go to their website at seon.io. And you can actually try a free demo of their verification product at forward slash demo. So, all right, let's dive in, shall we? <laughs> I should probably give you a heads up. It's late at night, but 
I'm trying hard to keep that train of thought moving. <laughs> so during an earnings call this week, PayPal admitted that at least 4.5 million of their account signups in 2021 were fraudulent. That is 10% of the accounts opened in 2021 and 1% of their account volume overall. Following the call, PayPal's earnings fell 25%. They've also admitted that their previous goal of achieving 750 million total accounts by 2025 was unrealistic, and that this goal led to an increase in spending on marketing and sales. Last year, PayPal started incentivizing new accounts on PayPal as well as on Venmo signups by offering $10 per new account. They discovered bot farms starting to create accounts in mass to get $10 each, which can add up really quickly. If you just think of the 4.5 million accounts that they identified after the fact, that's $45 million that they paid out. I'm sure they tried to get as much of it back from the account credits, but that can add up really fast. And like I said, it's not isolated at all. So I'll be talking about that a little bit more in a minute. Now, they're changing their sales strategy to focus on increasing spend on existing accounts, which I think is very smart. They already have about 426 million accounts, so it's hard to know where in the world there are other people that don't yet have a PayPal account, but that is a better solution in my mind. But again, I'm always looking at things from a fraud-focused lens, but really around referrals and all these cost of customer acquisitions going on in tech. You see them all the time as a consumer. Refer a friend, you get $20, they get $20. Or open a new account and you get $50 worth of spend on an online gambling site. Things like that. And those are effective marketing tools. And your marketing department, if you listened to last Thursday's episode where I talked about what other departments care about and how fraud fighters can talk their language to help them understand the importance of fighting fraud within your company and how actually it can provide so much more value and trust for your customers rather than just being seen as sales prevention within your company. So in going back to that conversation, I talked a lot about how marketing cares about customer acquisition as well as conversion. And obviously these tactics work. However, they also work well to attract bad actors. Bot farms are just popping up everywhere now. And honestly, with sneaker bots, which I plan to get an expert in soon to talk about that, because I do know more than the average person about these bots, but I know people that know even more about them than I do to come share with you. But especially with these and the average user can just hire one and point it towards a specific retailer and specific item. And every few minutes or hours or however you set it up, the bot will try to place an order on your behalf. So there's bots of all kinds now, but definitely in the last few years with AI improving, it's helped the fraud fighting side, but it's also helped bad actors. And there are, we call them bot farms, but sometimes they're just people who set them up and walk away from their computer. It's not like 30,000 computers all tied together or anything like that. But they're just continually opening accounts on specific companies. And we're using PayPal as an example because they were public about this. But take my word for it, they are not even close to the only technology company that has this issue on a regular basis. And so a lot of times what can happen is these bot firms learn, oh, well, we get $10 for every account we set up. We don't have to steal a credit card. We don't have to do anything else. 
And there's so much information out there about people that's just out there from all these data breaches that it's easy to set up accounts in their names. And something that I was having a really interesting conversation with Marianne Miller recently, which I'm so excited to get to talk to her. We could talk for hours. I'm sure that doesn't surprise anyone about me, but <laughs> Marianne has been in fraud longer than me and I've always kind of had an eye up to her, like I look up to her and she's primarily been on the fintech side. But we were talking about this a little bit the other day and she said what gets lost in these stories is that that's 4.5 million people whose identity was stolen, whose information was used to open those accounts. And I thought that was a really good point because I do think in fraud, we look at numbers and analytics, but we aren't always thinking about the people. And the fact that because PayPal and a lot of other fintech companies and technology companies don't report to the credit bureau, those 4.5 million people don't even know that an account was opened in their name on PayPal, which is awfully violating. And honestly, a lot of times they're setting up these accounts and then they're selling them months later as aged accounts to people who will go and monetize them. So it's really important that PayPal shut these down. And that is something that terrifies me when talking to other technology companies who aren't allowed to shut down fraudulent accounts that often, once you let those bad actors in, even if you know for sure that they're bad, that just gives them more opportunities to defraud your company and defraud people using your company. And that does impact the brand. So I don't know if everyone knows this, maybe you do, but there are a lot of groups on social media and I actually just looked one up on Reddit today where people are selling or posting referral codes or message me for my referral code. In some cases, some people are offering to pay out of pocket if somebody opens a specific investment account online or things like that. And that makes me super nervous because they probably wouldn't be offering $50 of their own money on top of the $20 referral bonus if they didn't have bad intentions, I guess, wrong intentions, nefarious intentions, I'm trying to say. So anyway, there's you know that all out there. I highly recommend if your company offers referral fees to do a quick search on Reddit as well as other social media sites. There are closed groups and public groups sharing these things. But a lot of times they're, you know, just opening the account to get them offer and then not using it. Those generally aren't what marketing's thinking about when they're offering people money. They're often thinking these will be people that will become good customers and have a long lifetime value. And so if you're able to show them, hey, do we know, are we okay with these things being posted? That might be one way into the conversation. But there's just a lot of gaming the system when you offer things like this, especially when there isn't a mechanism that they have to earn it. So you will see with some of these referral offers that you'll get the money after your first transaction or after five transactions or or whatever that is. And when companies don't offer that, as PayPal learned, this is when they are especially targets for these bad actors. So there are several lessons that can be learned from this news. And the first one is if you wait to cancel fraudulent accounts after they're created, not only can it lead to the risks of those accounts being sold for account takeover or just, not it's not even account takeover if they're bogus accounts, but being able to commit fraud on them depending on the business model, right? So if it's BNPL, they're aging it for a few months to make it look more legitimate and then selling it to someone else to be able to monetize off of that set up a BNPL account in that person's name and then never pay it or 
worse, right? So you use stolen credit cards to pay it off. There's all kinds of things on BNPL fraud that can happen, as well as with consumer lending, with anything in fintech, as well as a lot of the tech companies. A lot of companies in Silicon Valley, this is also very applicable to them. But in addition to that, especially if you're a public company, you have to disclose it like PayPal did. So maybe that's something you can share with your company, right? Hey, I know that you don't want us to impact growth, but look what PayPal had to do. And I'll be talking about that so much more because what really got a lot of attention on LinkedIn, and I didn't realize this was a dirty little secret. It's an open secret in technology fraud, <laughs> but there were just a lot of people that hadn't thought of it in this way. It's that oftentimes these days, company performance and value is solely tied to number of users. It's tied to number of accounts. And so when the entire rest of the company, and I talked about this in a previous episode, I want to say it was episode 53, I'm sorry, or 47, 47 sounds right. Sorry, guys. I didn't look it up ahead of time, but I was talking about, you know, big tech and fintech fraud and all that. And this is when I talked about the fact that when companies' performance is tied to number of users, and that is one of the only metrics, sometimes that are often, especially in a startup, in their several series throughout the alphabet, the number of users comes before profit or any sales volume at all as far as the priority, whether that's for VC funding or publicly traded companies on the stock market. And when that happens, and the entire rest of the company is focused on new accounts, new accounts. And then you have the fraud department that's trying to keep their company safe. Oftentimes, the fraud department is outweighed. And I know several stories from, yes, big brands, but I will never say them. You guys know that. Where people have confided in me that if they were to clean fraudulent accounts, their number of users would be at least half. I mean, sometimes more than that. Sometimes it's like 75%. And they've done these analysis and they've tried to explain it to their company. But when their CEO is going on public broadcasts and other places bragging about 50 million users or 40 million users, but the fraud department says, well, no, we really only have 5 million users that are paying or using our services or you know, lending or actually good customers. That's a huge disconnect and that's an overinflated valuation. And that is something that I, like I said, I mentioned it on, I believe it was episode 47 because I sent it to someone the other day, but I really talked about that in depth. So I'm going to try not to repeat myself too much, but this is exactly the problem. And this is unfortunately what happened when PayPal disclosed this, they lost their stock value, lost 25% in one day. To me, I'm like, wow, that makes me want to invest money in PayPal because I think that they actually did something right right now as far as copying to it and saying, we don't want this on our system. To me, that shows that they, they, they take consumer trust and consumer safety seriously. Was there a time a long time ago when they first started where maybe they hadn't thought about that yet? Yes, but they learned very expensive lessons and they have hired incredibly smart people. I've had a few of their previous employees who built their fraud system uh, on my podcast before, Uri Arad, as well as Gil Rosenthal. Uh, we've mentioned Galit Sapori before. So anyway, they're just incredible people and they're no longer with PayPal, but they have talked about it in the past and on this podcast and they're just so smart. So I know they have a lot of systems, but it really 
takes the focus off of quality of customers and puts it onto quantity. And so I really believe that valuations need to be strongly reconsidered and looking at the quality of customers and the active users versus just number of users in a system. Especially because if one of the reasons why you're valuing number of users in the system is because you have all their data, if 50% of those accounts are bogus, that has no value. That has no value to your company. And chances are those accounts have only cost your company money in various ways, whether it's customer acquisition costs through these referral promos or just promotions for new account opening or later on where they allow the account to be dormant and then take that legacy and capitalize on, on it for a bigger hit. There's just so many different ways that it can be monetized and impact the company. But I also know that fraud fighters' hands are tied behind their back. I know several people will say, I'm not allowed to touch growth, but I can touch transactions. And I understand that. And when I work with a company like that, I do my very best to help them within those parameters. But at the same time, I share with them what Gil Rosenthal shared with me weeks ago or months at this point, which is, you know, if you are taking an analogy of a sinking boat with several holes in it and transaction fraud or transaction fraud monitoring is like putting your fingers in the holes to try to plug them up, looking at the new account and stopping it before they even get into your system is like boarding those holes up so they don't even come through. And I get it. I'm preaching to the converted right now, but that's why I'm going to move on and try to help a little bit with how you can navigate around that. So a lot of people also are losing focus on the human and the consumer impact of identity theft and payment fraud. How many times, and I've shared this with executives before when I'm working on a project for merchants, when they question fraud, the, the importance of them preventing fraud. And I say, you know, have you ever had your credit card stolen? And usually it's all like, yes. Do you remember the company where that credit card, you know, was used? Oh, yeah, absolutely. How many people did you tell that your card was stolen and used at X company? And it's kind of like, oh, <laughs> same way with new accounts being open in your name or all other things. So that's just something to think about. And I mean, obviously, marketing campaigns that provide monetary incentives to open up an account with no other requirements are prime targets for bot farms. And PayPal learned that the hard way. So like I mentioned last week, it can be really challenging to work with marketing, especially to see a bigger picture. One way is to schedule a call to present PayPal as an example that this can happen to any company and that you'd rather get ahead of the problem versus having to disclose it to your shareholders or investors. That can be a difficult meeting to schedule. That can be a difficult meeting to have. I would suggest arming yourself with more internal data when you're doing that. But that is one thing that you can do is use this as an example, use this as a catalyst to try to impact change within your company. Like I've mentioned before, I'm an optimistic realist. So I'm aware that that's not an easy conversation to have, but it's one that I suggest starting to kind of lay the groundwork for and having more conversations. It's really hard to have the business adopt it, especially when investors are counting on that. But it can also, I think this is a prime opportunity with more consumers, especially as Matt mentioned last podcast, I was going to say last week, but it was just two days ago. 
that more people that are investing in crypto are really caring about privacy and how companies are handling their information and their data, especially because NFTs and crypto can't be replaced. But I think this is a great opportunity for a handful of companies to make a switch and say, hey, you know what, we were doing it this way, but we decided we really wanted to focus on the current customers we have and just provide so much value that they're telling their friends organically. And I know that that's not gonna give companies explosive growth, but that explosive growth also isn't sustainable. If it is sustainable and if a company continues to keep posting massive numbers of users over and over again, and I see it quite often of companies that I know the true story and see headlines of how many users, and I'm like, mm, not really, but that's just not sustainable. All you're doing is allowing bad actors to come into your system and create more fraudulent accounts. I'm not saying they all are, but when I say it's half, I'm not being hyperbolic. Like maybe the biggest difference in active users to total users I've heard is 30%, but there's a lot of huge discrepancies in what's publicly posted with fraud, with fintech, with technology companies in general, with marketplaces. I'll just honestly all new Silicon Valley technology that's based on this. And it's not because the fraud and risk and security teams aren't trying to do everything they can, but hands are tied. Here's another thing. I don't think that you need to wait for the business to adapt to this. You can track it yourself. And I highly recommend it. This is something I did years ago, and it really helped frame conversations with senior leadership. I'm not going to say it went perfectly because the company wasn't in a good place. And so there was a lot of desperate measures being had, but it was something that was listened to and adapted to in some ways. And so what I recommend is tracking your chargebacks by marketing campaign and as well as the date of account creation. So looking at all the user, when you're looking at your chargebacks, how many of those users are new? And then within that, how many of them received incentive or whatever that that marketing campaign was, right? Maybe marketing was going through a new affiliate or going through a new channel. And by them going on a specific social media channel, your chargebacks went way up and it was directly connected to that. This, these are just some examples. Tracking that is really important because you can be able to show exact dollar losses tied to those marketing campaigns. If it's not a marketing campaign, you can do it by various like level or what was date of sale is really important. That's something that I was reviewing a new chargeback model recently for a company and they didn't have date of sale in their analytics. And I said, well, that's really important. So you can track back, well, what happened that day? Was there a new marketing campaign? Or maybe it wasn't marketing at all. Maybe there was some social media influencer that posted about it, or it rained in a certain area of the US and you sell rain gear. I don't know, like <laughs> I'm just making stuff up now, but it's very valuable information. And if you don't have chargebacks, you can look at other areas of loss. So you can look at account takeovers that you found as well as account takeovers that were reported through customer service. You can look at all different areas of loss and you know, track the order and account cancellations, obviously to marketing campaigns, but also just in general, right? You might also find that there are seasonal patterns 
of fraud in your business. It's probably right around when other consumers are wanting your product because often fraudsters are just trying to get in on it so they can sell it on a secondhand marketplace. So if what you're selling is popular at the time, that's going to be a great time for them to try to blend in. You can casually ask marketing what their average CAC is. So that's the customer acquisition cost and also the lifetime value of a customer if you don't know it. And then provide data and graphs to the impacted teams to provide a feedback loop to the business. So what I mean by that is adding the cost of fraud to the customer acquisition costs as well as the lifetime value. So Soup's Ranjan actually provided this in a great article that he posted on LinkedIn the other day. I'll try to remember to put it in the show notes today so that you can find it easy. But this was something that he recommended that I have said as well to some companies where sometimes a company needs to understand how much these bad actors are costing the company. And if you, if the end result is a chargeback, you can add the chargeback to the chargeback fee and then also the customer acquisition cost. Because if your marketing department is paying 20 or $30 per customer, then that's also money that was lost. So you can start adding that up and saying, hey, there's a much bigger cost to our business than just our chargebacks. You can also include the cost of your team and your resources and the technology that you use to identify this fraud. All of those things can be helpful to put together a total cost so that you can confidently say, hey, I know that we did a new campaign with X or we launched this new referral program. I just wanted to provide a bit of a feedback loop of what resulted from that. And yes, we did get a great number of customers and good customers, but this group of bad actors has taken away from all of those profits because we've had to pay out customer acquisition as well as chargebacks. We lost our items, we lost our service and just add that up. And that can help create a catalyst for a conversation. It's something that I suggest reporting over time. There are some, there's at least one really good chargeback company that has incredible data analytics that I recommend companies to, but there's also businesses that are doing it internally as well. But I think it's really important to track that down. I've long said that chargebacks give you such a great feedback loop and tell you so much about your business and why customers are calling their bank to issue a chargeback, whether they're claiming fraud or other things. It's good data. And it again, it provides a feedback loop to the whole business if you're reporting on it correctly. So that is it for my rant or further explanation of my viral LinkedIn post. But I do want to say that I appreciate and commend PayPal for this. I know that it was probably not something they could avoid disclosing and they probably really didn't want to. But from my perspective, it shows that they're trying to clean up their system and that they're trying to take customer trust seriously. And they've also acknowledged the error of their ways publicly, which doesn't happen very often and said, hey, we're no longer we no longer have this astronomical number that we're trying to work towards because it made us participate in, I don't want to say desperate marketing efforts, but marketing efforts that definitely attracted bot farms and probably cost them over $45 million, which takes away from so many of the good customers that you signed up for PayPal or Venmo and used them and provided a lifetime value. 
So with that, I'm going to go for the day. But as always, I appreciate you all so much for listening and always enjoy hearing from you. And I'll talk to you next time. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.